one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Disappointing Mormonism. You know, sometimes I wonder why it is that Mormonism can be so disappointing to me. But I think the obvious answer to that is because I loved it so much and I trusted it so much and I believed it so much. It is only when you really believe and trust someone that they have the ability to disappoint you. And the same with an institution like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is only when I love an institution, a church, so much that it has the ability to disappoint me. For instance, a number of years ago, there was some sort of scandal involving the United Way and the CEO of the company having gold fixtures in his bathroom. That created quite a scandal, so much so that I can remember it, even though I think it's been over 25 years since that happened. And yet... Even though I remember it, it did not disappoint me. And the reason it didn't disappoint me is because I have no involvement with the United Way. I have never volunteered there. I've never worked for the United Way. I've never contributed to the United Way. And I think that the closer a person is to the United Way, the more likely they are to be disappointed by that kind of a revelation. By the same token, though I was not disappointed by that scandal involving the United Way, I was very disappointed in the LDS Church over the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Scandal, that broke wide open just a couple of months ago. By the way, I am recording this on April 16th, 2023, for the record. But you might ask, why is it that you're disappointed by the LDS Church in 2023 when you have long since concluded that its truth claims just do not hold up? When you no longer believe in the divine origin and nature and guidance of the LDS Church, why should an SEC scandal in 2023 disappoint me? That is the question that I've been pondering, and I don't know that I have the answer. All I know is that it is a fact, and I don't know if I'm the only one who has experienced this. All I know is that I have put Mormonism, or at least its truth claims, in my rearview mirror. It is a dot on the horizon. And yet, still, periodically, from time to time, something can happen in the LDS Church. And I feel disappointed by it. I feel let down by it. I feel betrayed by it. And I wonder, why am I having these feelings? And I suppose the answer is that the LDS Church is not as far back in my rearview mirror as I had thought. That Mormonism is with us late and soon. And I must still have some subconscious attachment to the church in order for it to be able to continue to disappoint me. A little bit about this podcast. I have been meaning to record this podcast for years now, and yet I have continued to put it off and put it off and find other things to do and other things to talk about. And yet this podcast and the idea for this podcast has continuously been hovering over my head like a flock of buzzards. It's like the opening line in The Merchant of Venice. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. Well, in this case, in sooth, I know not why I have such a mental block about doing this episode, but I'm seeking to break through that mental block today, record this, and get it out of my system. I think one of the reasons this is difficult for me to enunciate and to articulate is because it deals a lot with feelings. And as most of you know, if you've listened to my show at all, I am a person who lives 95% of the time in my head. I am one of the most self-unaware people you would ever meet when it comes to my feelings and processing them and figuring out why it is that I feel certain ways on some days and other ways on other days, and more to the point, why it is that periodically I feel disappointed in Mormonism to this day. But I think I've boiled this down now into a presentation that's going to involve four stories. And these are four stories in which, of course, I am involved because it deals with disappointment of Mormonism to me. I'm also going to say that a lot of people have asked me, in fact, it's a very frequent question, what is it that you found out, Radio Free Mormon, about the LDS Church that caused you to lose your testimony? What was it that sunk you? What was it that broke your shelf? And the fact is, there is no one thing to which I can point. My experience has been a death by a thousand cuts, and each one of those cuts involves some degree of disappointment on my part. And for at least the first half Of the time I was a member of the church, and I joined in 1978, remember, it's now 2023, so that's been 45 years, for at least the first half of my membership in the church, when I would encounter these facts that disappointed me about the LDS church, I was the first one there to make excuses for them 
in order to make it so I was not disappointed, so that the church was not showing any indication of not being run by God, but that it really was what it claimed to be. These were the days in which I was a Mormon apologist. So that was my bread and butter. I was there to make excuses for the church. And the church has a lot of things to make excuses for. And the more you study church history, the more things you find that need to have excuses made for them. And the longer you live, the more things the church does in real time that have to have excuses made for them, as in the recent SEC scandal. So having said that much, let me start out with the first of these four stories. Now, the first of the four stories has to do with another story called the Joseph Smith story. That is what we used to call the first vision account, and specifically the 1838 first vision account. Although, when I joined the church in 1978, I did not know that there were any other versions because the church kept that pretty well secret from its members. They only talked about the official Joseph Smith story, the one that is contained in the Pearl of Great Price. The first time I heard the Joseph Smith story was when I was taking the missionary discussions back in June of 1978. This was the day of the rainbow discussions. And I'm surprised now that there are some people who don't even know the expression rainbow discussions, so I'll tell you what that means. First off, these were all memorized by the missionaries. Yes, every single one of the six discussions was memorized word for word. And they were all assembled in a little notebook with a binder and holes in each of the pages of the discussions to fit in the binder. Each of the discussions was assigned a different color. In other words, each of the different discussions was printed on a different color paper so that when you put them all in the binder, which is where they normally resided, and you looked at them from the side, it looked like a rainbow. Hence the name the rainbow discussions. The important part of this for purposes of this story is that they were memorized. So when the missionaries taught me about Joseph Smith, they quoted verbatim the Joseph Smith story, starting with, there was in the place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion and going on from there. And it's a rather long story, as you might expect, going all the way through his encounter with James chapter one, verse five, going out into the grove to pray, having Satan try and mess things up, and then having God and Jesus appear to him, and God the Father introducing Joseph Smith to God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. We all know the story. But the fact is that I found this story quite powerful. I felt like I was hearing the words of truth. I felt that Joseph Smith was telling me the truth about what really happened. And there's something about the way it was framed, the way it was told, that really gave me that impression. This is a person who is telling the truth, regardless of how outlandish or phenomenal or miraculous his experience is, he's telling me the truth. By the way, parenthetically, there was within the last year an issue of Psychology Today with an article in it that contained the results of three separate studies, all of them bearing on the same aspect of human psychology. And that aspect is this. We as human beings tend to be much more confident in our ability to discern truth being spoken by another than we really are. In other words, we tend to think that if someone's talking to us, we have this ability to say whether they're telling the truth or whether they're lying. It is a belief we have about our own ability that doesn't hold up in the laboratory, which means that we as humans are much more likely, it seems, to be taken in by somebody who's telling us a false story because we think we can discern that they are telling us the truth. There's no evidence involved. It's simply ascertaining the truth of a story and the truthfulness of the person who's telling it to us based upon our own intuition. And it is that belief that we as humans tend to have that gets us in a lot of trouble. And it is that belief that I have that got me into a lot of trouble. And that lot of trouble was called joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. After I was baptized into the church in June of 1978, and before I went on my mission, In November of 1979, I read a lot of books. I was not a big reader before that, but I became, unless you count comic books. But other than comic books, I was not a big reader. But I became a big reader after joining the church. And this is one of the genuinely positive aspects of Mormonism in my life. It taught me discipline. It taught me how to work when I got on my mission. And it also got me interested in academic pursuits in a way I never had before. And in that time period between baptism and going on my mission, I read a lot of books. And with the exception of one book that I read during that time period, all of the other books were church books. And there was quite a long line of them that I read. I can't remember them all at this point. I remember I read Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. I certainly read A Marvelous Work and a Wonder by LeGrand Richards. I read The Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer Kimball. 
I read a couple of books by Hugh Nibley. I read The Articles of Faith by James Talmadge. And over and over again, not in every one of these books, but certainly in several of these books, I encountered the Joseph Smith story within the pages of these books. And of course, I'm going to church every week too, and I'm encountering the Joseph Smith story there on a regular basis. So I'm hearing the story over and over again. And every time I hear it, I'm impressed with the truth of what it is that I'm hearing Joseph Smith say. And in 1979, when I've decided I'm going to go on a mission, I figure that I should take some time to memorize the Joseph Smith story myself, because I'm going to have to be saying it assuming that I get called on an English-speaking mission, which, of course, I did not. I went to Japan. But nevertheless, I didn't know this at the time, so I spent a lot of time memorizing the Joseph Smith story for myself. Now, having memorized a lot of other things since then, I want to say that there is something about the act of memorization that takes whatever it is that's being memorized and makes it a part of me. In some sense, I become what it is that I'm memorizing, And it has more power in my heart and soul than it would if I had simply read it and not memorized it. And I think the same kind of thing happened with the Joseph Smith story. Memorizing the Joseph Smith story made it all the more real to me and it made it all the more a part of me. I remember being at the MTC, the Missionary Training Center, from November of 1979 to January of 1980. And during that time, of course, I'm presented again with the Joseph Smith story in a number of different ways. Whether it's by people coming in and speaking or reading materials, Joseph Smith's story is front and center at that time in the LDS church. And at the MTC, I remember having the experience of really feeling that Joseph Smith was telling the truth because after it's all over and he gets done recounting it, he talks about this in verse 24 of Joseph Smith History 1 in the Pearl of Great Price. However, It was nevertheless a fact that I had beheld a vision. I have thought since that I felt much like Paul when he made his defense before King Agrippa and related the account of the vision he had when he saw a light and heard a voice. But still, there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest. Others said he was mad and he was ridiculed and reviled. But all this did not destroy the reality of his vision. So in this way, he's paralleling himself with Paul in the New Testament. And certainly Paul had the same reaction to his vision as Joseph Smith had to his. So I'm thinking, yeah, this is true. There is historical precedent for this kind of reaction to a vision. Not just historical precedent for the vision, but for the reaction to the vision. And then Joseph Smith goes on. He, Paul, had seen a vision. He knew he had, and all the persecution under heaven could not make it otherwise. And though they should persecute him unto death, Yet he knew and would know to his latest breath that he had both seen a light and heard a voice speaking unto him, and all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. And this is where Joseph Smith now applies that same lesson to himself and his vision. Verse 25, so it was with me. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light, I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. Can you hear the honesty and the truth of this coming through across the page. I can, I still can, even though I'm pretty darn sure at this point that this never actually happened. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it. Neither dared I do it. At least I knew that by so doing, I would offend God and come under condemnation. That is an incredible passage that strikes me still with such force that this person is telling the truth. He is a believer in God. He knows that God exists, and he knows that he will be held accountable before the judgment bar of God for saying the truth about what happened, that he will be blessed for saying the truth and he'll be cursed if he denies it. So of course he's got to say the truth. All of this struck me with great force in my early days in the church. This passage by Joseph Smith is somewhat similar to a famous talk that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a few years ago when he held up a Book of Mormon in General Conference. Yes, the very book, even though it turned out not to be later, the very book that Hiram Smith read from when Joseph and Hiram were at Carthage jail together on the day when later that day they would both be killed by an angry mob. 
And in that talk, Elder Holland used the same kind of principle that Joseph Smith is indicating here in his own story by saying, if these people knew that this was a fraud, if Joseph and Hiram knew this was all made up in a con job, and they were just lying about the spiritual gifts and the spiritual visions and the visitations of angels and the visitation of God the Father and Jesus Christ, and if they were just lying about all this, why would they give their lives for something that was a fraud? That the only way to properly view the fact that they gave up their lives for the church is because they knew it was true. As one of a thousand elements of my own testimony of the divinity of the Book of Mormon, I submit this as yet one more evidence of its truthfulness. In this their greatest and last hour of need, I ask you, would these men blaspheme before God by continuing to fix their lives, their honor, and their own search for eternal salvation on a book and by implication a church and a ministry they had fictitiously created out of whole cloth? Never mind that their wives are about to be widows and their children fatherless. Never mind that their little band of followers will yet be houseless, homeless, and friendless, and that their children will leave footprints of blood across frozen rivers and an untamed prairie floor. Never mind that legions will die and other legions live, declaring in the four quarters of this earth that they know the Book of Mormon and the church which it espouses it to be true. Disregard all of that and tell me whether in this hour of death these two men would enter the presence of their eternal judge, quoting from and finding solace in a book which, if not the very word of God, would brand them as impostors and charlatans until the end of time. They would not do that. But of course, with a little bit of reflection, we all understand that people of all sorts of different religious denominations give their lives on a regular basis as a sacrifice for the truth of their particular religious belief. Which then leads me to conclude that the fact that a person gives their life for their religious belief does not mean that that religious belief is true. And so, many years later, having confirmed in my own heart the truth of what it is that Joseph Smith says in his official account of the first vision, I became surprised, disappointed, and even saddened. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. Well, in this case, I do know why I was so sad to find out that Joseph Smith did not give only this version of his first vision, but had also given other accounts of his first vision. And in his earliest account of the first vision from 1832, six years before the official account was written, he mentioned seeing only one being in his vision, and that one being was Jesus Christ. There's no mention of God the Father showing up. And not only that, in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith has already realized and figured out from his study of the Bible that all the Christian churches are in a state of apostasy, and the true church cannot be found upon the earth before he goes to the grove to pray. Because in the 1832 account, he goes to the grove to pray for forgiveness of sins. In the 1838 account now, he goes to the grove to figure out which of all the churches is true. Something that in the 1832 account, he'd already figured out before he went to the grove to pray. And so the sadness that I felt when realizing that I had taken Joseph Smith at his word in the 1838 account because of the way he spoke it, because of the way he wrote it, because it seemed so true to me, was not actually as true as I had thought it was. It was not as true as Joseph Smith had led me to believe it was true. And more than that, the church leaders in real time, not just Joseph Smith over 100 years before, but the church leaders in real time were engaged in this cover-up and in this deception because they knew that the 1832 account existed, they knew it was problematic, and that's why they hid it away from every other member of the church until such time as knowledge of its existence was leaked to the public by the Tanners in the 1960s, and they felt compelled to produce it. The details of all that have been talked about in other podcasts. By the way, the 1835 account of the First Vision was actually hidden 
longer than the 1832 account of the first vision. The 1832 account of the first vision was first published in 1965, and the 1835 account of the first vision was not published until the following year in 1966. So it's not just one account of the first vision that was hidden away by the church. It was two accounts of the first vision. And the other two, which are the 1838 account of the first vision, it's the one that's in the church's scriptures, and the 1842 account of the first vision in the Wentworth letter, those were the only ones that were on the table for over a hundred years after Joseph Smith's death. So at the same time as I am losing faith in and being disappointed by Joseph Smith, I am losing faith in and being disappointed by the leaders of the church whom I have accepted and revered as prophets, seers, and revelators and raised my hand at every general conference and state conference in order to sustain them as such. So that's my first story about disappointing Mormonism and how Mormonism disappointed me. Obviously, these are just four stories. There are many, many stories like this in my life. These four stories are just representative of all the rest. Now, the next story has to do with when I was a young adult back in Austin, Texas. I attended the University of Texas at Austin where I was a dance major and later I was a law student. And I attended church at an institute building. That's where they had the young adults. The student ward is what they called it back then. And I attended that ward for almost all of the 1980s as well. The Institute building, which was just about a block off campus, also was a place where we had different activities, including dances on the weekends and, of course, Institute classes. And we had students who would show up and then not show up, in addition to the regulars, such as myself, who were pretty much always there. One night, there was a dance at the Institute building. And this particular story doesn't involve the dance. It involves the foyer of the building, or as Mormons would say, the foyer. I was sitting in the foyer on the couch with a good friend of mine named Veronica Garcia. She went by Ronnie Garcia. She was absolutely a fantastic person, TBM as I was in those days, perhaps even more so. But still, she was a good friend and she had a great sense of humor. But we were not alone out there. There was another individual who was out there, and he was one of these people who came into the ward for only a short period of time before he left again. His name, as I recall, was Kim. I can't remember his last name, but he was a fellow from Georgia, and he had this wonderful Georgian accent. Now, if you've only lived in the northern part of the United States, you might think it funny that a person who's from Texas is thinking that a person from Georgia has a wonderful accent or speaks in any accent that's different than a person from Texas. But trust me, if you've lived for any amount of time in the South, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're completely distinct accents. And he had a wonderful Georgian accent. Now, he was also a very captivating speaker. And he was telling us stories about his life, his recent life. And the story that he told us on this one night had to do with when he was in boot camp. And the story he told about when he was in boot camp was about how the drill instructor had all of the platoon out on maneuvers on this sandy beach. And he had them all hit the deck on the sandy beach and they were supposed to freeze there and not move. Well, the problem with the sandy beach is that it had fleas in it. And appropriately enough, they were called sand fleas. So Kim tells a story about how he's lying there. He knows he can't move. He knows the drill instructor is watching every one of them for any movement. But the sand flea gets on his neck and starts biting him. So unthinking, he smacks the sand flea to kill it. The drill instructor sees him slap the sand flea and gets totally livid with him. And the next time they're at the barracks, the drill instructor comes through the barracks and starts telling everybody that because Kim had moved and slapped the sand flea and murdered this sand flea, that everybody in the entire platoon was going to have to go out to that sand dune and dig and dig and dig until they found this particular sand flea that Kim had killed so they can give it a proper burial. And this isn't the day's activities. This is after all of the day's activities are already over and these guys are totally tired and ready to go into their bunks. No, they have to go out to the dune to find the sand flea. And they're digging around and digging around and finally somebody comes up with a dead sand flea and gives it to the drill instructor and the drill instructor calls Kim over and holds the sand flea, this tiny little sand flea up in front of his face and says, was the sand flea that you killed male or female? And Kim has no idea so he just says male and the drill instructor says, well this sand flea is a female so obviously it's not the right one. Keep digging. That was the funny part of the story. And it was funny in kind of a sadistic drill instructor, Marine boot camp kind of way. But I remember that story. And so did Ronnie. 
because it was designed to be memorable. And we're talking to this guy, Kim. He's totally earnest. We have no problem accepting this as 100% gospel truth that he's telling us this story that happened to him. Because what motive would he have to make up a story like this? None that I can imagine. It's a weird story. It's an unusual story. But it's not like it's completely unbelievable. So I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And so did Ronnie. Now, the second part of this story is that within a week of that, I'm over at Ronnie's house. We spent some time together. We were just friends, but she was a great friend to have, and I hope she's doing great in her life right now. I haven't spoken to her in ages. And if she still is TBM now as she was then, I imagine she would be quite disappointed in me. But regardless, it's probably 1983. I'm over at her house watching TV, and there had been this new invention and this new advancement in television watching at the time. In the 1970s, there were basically four channels, if you include PBS, and you would get up from your chair, and I would have to get up, walk over to the TV, change the channel, and then go back and sit down if I wanted to watch something else. Now it's 1983, and over at her house, they've got this great technology, which is sort of like a box, but it's a flat box, and there's a little pointer on the box that moves from left to right and from right to left, and each one of the clicks is like from zero to 100, and each of those represents a different channel. All of a sudden, there's a multiplicity, to use a word I borrowed from Joseph Smith. There is a multiplicity of channels that one can watch on TV. And what ends up happening is that you start looking for something to watch, and usually you're watching for maybe 10 seconds on a channel, then you click to the next one, 10 seconds, click to the next one, 10 seconds, click to the next one, 10 seconds. Pretty soon you're done with all 100, and you go back the other way trying to find something that you actually want to watch. Okay, so this is the situation that I'm in. And I click to one channel, and there is a movie that is on. It is a black and white movie. It is an army movie, and I've caught it in the middle of the movie. And I'm watching this for 10 seconds because it wasn't that great a movie. But in that 10 seconds where I just happened to click onto it, all of a sudden, I'm seeing a scene in this army movie with a drill instructor. And the drill instructor takes his platoon out to a sand dune and tells them all to hit the deck and freeze. And then one of them slaps a sand flea on his neck and kills it. And I'm watching this like a slow motion train wreck. And I continue to watch as every single element of Kim's story that he said happened to him in boot camp ends up being replicated in this old black and white army movie. Up to and including the story about the drill instructor saying, was it a male sand flea or a female sand flea that bit you? And the recruit saying it was male and the drill instructor saying, well, this one's female and throwing it away. And I was riveted to the movie as the sinking feeling came over me. And Ronnie was watching the movie too. And I remember that at one point, we both turned our heads slowly to look at each other and both of us had our jaws dropped wide open. We could not believe that Kim had told a story as if it had happened to him that he had obviously taken from this old black and white army movie. So regardless of why it was that Kim would do such a thing, the fact was indisputable that he had done such a thing. And not only had Kim done such a thing, I had believed it. I had believed that this actually happened to Kim because he told it to me in such an earnest manner that I believed him. And Ronnie had the same experience. She believed him because he told it in such an earnest manner. But regardless of how earnest a manner that Kim used in telling us this story, we now knew that it wasn't true. And I found out for myself that I thought I could tell when other people were telling the truth, even though they were lying to my face. Even though what they were telling me had happened to them had never happened to them, but they had actually borrowed it from some other place and represented it as if it had happened to them. I want to add here that yesterday I came down to the studio and I did a lot of research to try and find out what on earth that movie was, where this story was told. I've never seen it before. I've never seen it since. I didn't remember what the title of the movie was, probably because I didn't watch the whole movie at the time, just this scene. But I was able to find out yesterday that the movie is titled The D.I., and it's not Deseret Industries. It's Drill Instructor, the D.I. It stars Jack Webb. He starred in it. I'm pretty sure he directed it. And he met his wife during the filming of that movie. And the movie itself was based upon another screenplay, which was titled The Murder of a Sand Flea. 
So Jack Webb takes this short story, makes it into a movie, adds a few other things, and it comes out, it's a black and white movie, comes out in 1957. So if any of you want to watch that movie for yourself, that's how you find it. So my first story was about the Joseph Smith story. The second story was about the murder of the sand flea. And the third story out of this four-story series that I'm going to be relating to you today has to do with a story by Stephen King. I have read everything Stephen King has ever written, and a lot of it more than once. I'm a huge fan of Stephen King. When he talks in his introductions about his dear constant reader, he's talking to me and other people like me who have read everything that Stephen King has written. And as most of you know who've read anything by Stephen King, he has an awful lot of novels. But he has also written a number of short stories, many, many short stories that after a time get collected in different volumes. This is one of those volumes. It is a short story. It was published in Stephen King's collection called The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. And I read this book back in 2019. Now, you may be wondering how it is I can remember that I read it back in 2019, and not only that, probably in October of 2019. The reason why is is not because I can remember it independently, but it's because after I finish a book, I write on the front page the date on which I finished it. And the date on which I finished The Bizarre Bad Dreams was October 26, 2019. And when I read this story, I knew that I wanted to do a podcast about it, and I'm finally getting around to it. Over three years later, later. This is one of the best stories that Stephen King has ever written. There's absolutely nothing supernatural about it. It is in the genre of a Western story. It's also sort of in the genre of a murder mystery. But most importantly, it has to do with the ability of someone to tell when another person is saying the truth. If you haven't read this story and you want to read the story, you may want to skip this part because this will be a huge spoiler alert as to what happens in the story. The story goes like this. First off, it's out in the West. It's actually in the Dakota Territory shortly before they become a state. There is a sheriff whose name is Barkley, but I'm just going to call him the sheriff, who is the main figure in this story. He's the smart one. He's smarter than anybody else. He's more intelligent. He's more methodical in his thinking than anyone else in this small town out in the middle of nowhere. And his rationality against the irrational town folks is what comes into play in the story because it involves a murder. And not just any murder, but a murder of a 10-year-old girl. It is her birthday. She has had her birthday cake. She has her birthday dress on. She gets a silver dollar as a present for her birthday. And this little girl wants to go into town, which is apparently walking distance. She wants to go into town in order to get some candy at the general store. And her mom says, okay, you can, but don't eat any of it. You've already had enough sweet stuff today, but you can go ahead and get some candy at the general store. So she goes down to the general store to get candy, but she never shows up at the general store because she is murdered. Her body is found in an alleyway. And the only clue as to who might have done this thing is the fact that under her beautiful party dress that is, of course, spread out on the ground with along with her body, under the party dress is a hat. And the hat is known to belong to a certain individual in the community named Truesdale. Truesdale is a guy who is really, really slow. He's off. He's odd. He doesn't have any friends. He lives way outside of town by himself. So he is a very easy person for all the townsfolk to believe committed this murder. And there's his hat underneath her skirt. Obviously, it must have been Truesdale. So the sheriff goes out with a posse to Truesdale's house. They arrest him. They take him back into town. And everybody knows that Truesdale did it. By the way, even his name has the word true in it, which I think was probably more than coincidence now that I'm reflecting upon it. This murder suspect, this very slow, very marginalized person has the word true in his last name. So they go out and they arrest him. They ask him where his hat is. He doesn't know where his hat is. He actually reaches up to the top of his head as if he thought it was there. And only when he doesn't feel his hat does he realize that his hat is missing. Well, there were people, witnesses in town who saw him in town at the bar wearing his hat. And he ordered a drink. He ordered another drink. And then he left the bar. So they know he had his hat on earlier that day. And only shortly before this girl was found murdered, with Truesdale's hat under her skirt, found at the murder scene. 
And the sheriff is trying to get the truth out of him, trying to understand what happened, trying to get him to confess. And all that Truesdale will say was, well, I don't know. I had it. I don't know what happened. Did I lose it? Did I forget to take it? I'm not sure. Did someone steal it? I've got no idea why I don't have it, Sheriff. And I certainly got no idea how it came to be at the murder scene, and I had nothing to do with killing that young girl. So you've got the hat that's found at the murder scene, which seems pretty dang conclusive. And believe me, all the townsfolk, and especially the members of this young girl's family, they want blood, and they want Truesdale to swing for it. But there's another aspect to this story, and it involves the silver dollar. Because the silver dollar is missing as well. The silver dollar is not found in the girl's pockets. It's not found at the murder scene. It was obviously taken by whoever killed her. But when they go out to arrest Truesdale that night, the sheriff searches him, finds no silver dollar on him, finds no holes in his pockets, searches his boots once they get him back to the jail. There is a hole in one of his boots, but it's only the size of a dime. The sheriff searches his shack, searches the little oven, which has really nothing burning in it. There's just some ashes in it. Searches everywhere, cannot find this silver dollar. And it bothers him because he brings up this silver dollar issue with some other people and they say, well, he must have just thrown it away. But the sheriff is thinking, nah, Truesdale is too dumb to throw it away. He would keep that thing. And another person says, well, it probably went through a hole in his pocket. And the sheriff says, no, I checked his pockets. There are no holes in his pockets. And the one in his boot, if he'd put it in his boot, it wouldn't have fallen out because the hole in the boot is only the size of a dime. This keeps bothering the sheriff and bothering the sheriff. But he is the only one that this is bothering because by this time, a circuit court judge has been called in. The gallows are being built. Winter is coming. It's set in November. And there is going to be a kangaroo court where the circuit judge doubles as the prosecuting attorney and they have somebody defending Truesdale who has no experience as a lawyer and only agrees to take the job when he is convinced that there's no way that Truesdale can get off. <laughs> as I say, this is a fantastically told story, one of the best by Stephen King. But it's what happens during the trial that is of significance. And I want to read you that passage here. By the way, the title of this, if I haven't mentioned before, is called A Death. And we'll come back to that in a second. So everybody's at whatever room it is they're using for the courthouse. And George Andrews, who is the fellow who's the defense attorney, is asking questions of Truesdale, who's on the stand. Did you encounter Rebecca Klein in that alley? Of course, that's the name of the 10-year-old dead girl. Did you encounter Rebecca Klein in that alley? George Andrews asked in a loud voice. With every eye on him, he had discovered a heretofore hidden flair for the dramatic. Did you encounter her and steal her birthday dollar? No, sir, Truesdale said. Did you kill her? No, sir. I didn't even know who she was. Mr. Klein, that would be the girl's father, Mr. Klein rose from his seat and shouted, You lying son of a bitch. I ain't lying, is what Truesdale says. I ain't lying, Truesdale said. And now listen to this part. I ain't lying, Truesdale said. And that was when Sheriff Barclay believed him. So there was something about the way that Truesdale said this, I ain't lying, that hit the sheriff between the eyes and resolved his doubts in favor of Truesdale's story, that Truesdale really was telling the truth, that he had not killed this girl, and that the birthday dollar, that silver dollar that nobody could find, proved it, and that he was slow enough and dumb enough to where maybe somebody had stolen his hat. Maybe he had lost his hat and someone picked it up and then committed the murder and left his hat there. But of course, it is only the sheriff who is convinced of the innocence of Truesdale. Because a winter storm is coming, the judge said that they would dispense with closing arguments and sent the jury off to deliberate. The jury took an hour and a half. We voted to hang him on the first ballot, Kelton Fisher said later, but we wanted it to look decent. <laughs> so it was a total kangaroo court, which is also emphasized not only by the fact that the judge is playing prosecutor, but that they've already started building the gallows, even while the trial is in session. So they have kept Truesdale in the jail cell for about a month between the time he's arrested and the time he ends up being convicted and his hanging happens in short order after his conviction. Oh, I didn't mention this part, but the sheriff, when he arrests him, also has the unpleasant duty of doing what we would call today an anal search on him because he's looking for the silver dollar. He does not find it. But Truesdale is in this one jail cell. It's a small town. 
there's only two cells and there's only one person in one of the cells and that's Truesdale and he's there for about a month. And the sheriff is in charge of bringing him food to eat during the day and also he has a bucket in his cell for him to do his business, both number one and number two, and every other day the sheriff is the lucky one who gets to take it out and dump it. Well, there's a very Stephen King-esque scene involving the hanging, which is pretty gut-wrenching, especially when we're in the position of the sheriff who's watching it and actually involved in it, even though he knows that they're hanging an innocent man. But there's nothing he can do about it. Justice has run his course, he's had his trial, he's been convicted, he's been sentenced, and now he has to be hung. So now I'm going to read you the last page which is where we have the twist. And the whole reason this story hit me so profoundly when I read it over three years ago, back in October of 2019, and why it is I'm bringing up here today. Barkley went back to the jail and sat in the cell Truesdale had occupied. He sat there for 10 minutes. It was cold enough to see his breath. He knew what he was waiting for, and eventually it came. He picked up the small bucket that had held Truesdale's last drink of beer and he vomited. Then he went into his office and stoked up the stove. He was still there eight hours later trying to read a book. You see, he is so emotionally conflicted and distraught over the fact they just hung a man that he knows is innocent, that he throws up and he can't even concentrate enough to read a book. He was still there eight hours later trying to read a book when Abel Hines came in. Abel Hines is the owner of Hines Funeral Parlor and Mortuary. He's the undertaker. So Abel Hines comes in and said, You need to come down to the funeral parlor, Otis. There's something I want to show you. What? No, you'll want to see it for yourself. They walked down to the Hines funeral parlor and mortuary. In the back room, Truesdale lay naked on a cooling board. There was a smell of chemicals and shit. Sorry, my apologies. I told you it was Stephen King. There was a smell of chemicals and shit. They load their pants when they die that way, Hines said. Even men who go to it with their heads up, they can't help it. The sphincter lets go. And? Step over here. I figure a man in your job is seen worse than a pair of shitty drawers. They lay on the floor, mostly turned inside out. Something gleamed in the mess. Barkley leaned closer and saw it was a silver dollar. He reached down and plucked it out of the crap. I don't understand it, Hines said. Son of a bitch was locked up almost a month. There was a chair in the corner. Barkley sat down in it so heavily, he made a little woof sound. He must have swallowed it the first time when he saw our lanterns coming to arrest him. And every time it came out, he cleaned it off and swallowed it again. The two men stared at each other. You believed him, Hines said at last. Fool that I am, I did said the sheriff. Hines said, Maybe that says more about you than it does about him. The sheriff said, He went on saying he was innocent right to the end. He'll most likely stand at the throne of God saying the same thing. Yes, Hines said. The sheriff says, I don't understand. He was going to hang. Either way, he was going to hang. Do you understand it? Hines said, I don't even understand why the sun comes up. What are you going to do with that cartwheel? That's another name for a silver dollar. What are you going to do with that cartwheel? Give it back to the girl's mother and father? It might be better if you didn't, because... Hines shrugged. Because the Kleins knew all along. Everyone in town knew all along. He, the sheriff, was the only one that hadn't known. Fool that he was. The sheriff said... I don't know what I'm going to do with it. The wind gusted, bringing the sound of singing. It was coming from the church. It was the doxology. And that's the end of the short story. So maybe you can understand why it was that this short story hit me so hard. Here's the sheriff. He is the smartest person in the town. He's the most rational person in the town. He's the one who cares about the evidence more than anybody else in the town who's just full of bloodlust and revenge. And yet, everybody else in the town was right, and the sheriff was wrong. And what makes it worse is that the sheriff believed the murderer when the murderer said he did not murder that little girl. The title of the story, once again, is simply a death. And upon reflection, I wonder if that death refers to the little girl, 
whether it refers to the murderer who finally got hung at the end of the story, or whether it refers to something else, something inside the sheriff. That's something that led him to believe a lie because it was so honestly and sincerely stated. Is that the death that's being talked about? The death of the sheriff's confidence in his ability to tell whether someone else was telling the truth. And now we get to the fourth and final story of tonight's podcast. And this is one of those incidents where after I thought the LDS Church had lost all power to disappoint me, it nevertheless did. This was last summer, the summer of 2022, when this occurred. And in order to lay the groundwork for the story, I have to tell you about my mission president. In Japan, I was blessed, and I will use that term blessed, to have one of the most fantastic men be my mission president when I got to Kobe, Japan in January of 1980. His name was Thomas Stout. He was from Idaho. And I have never met a more charismatic individual, someone full of activity and care and concern and help, but in a very masculine way. He's someone who I could see going out and pulling sticks with Joseph Smith and maybe even winning once or twice. I remember getting to the MTC and being very concerned about my ability to speak Japanese. And he was so encouraging. He told me, you just go out there and butcher the language. It'll come to you over time. And the other thing that I remember when I first got there was that I was short of funds. Because having joined the church fresh out of high school, I only had a certain limited amount of time in which to save money for my mission. And the fact is that I saved enough money to get myself outfitted and equipped for my mission to get myself flown down to Provo to the MTC, to go through the MTC, and then to have airfare to get myself over from the United States to Japan. And once I landed on Japan, I was fresh out of money. So you can understand why that would be a cause of concern to me. And I expressed this in my first interview with the mission president, President Stout. He told me, don't worry about it. I'll take care of everything. We've got different sources. I'll access them. You don't worry about it. Let me worry about it. And you just go out there and butcher the language and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and have a great time doing it. And he did. He took care of everything. So he was a godlike figure in my eyes, as well as in the eyes of the other missionaries. This was a man who we believed would certainly someday become a general authority. He was that caliber. In fact, he was better than pretty much all the general authorities that we have on the roster today. And I want to tell you this other story about President Stout. We were at a mission conference where we're all showing up. Everybody from the mission, about 200 missionaries, has to ride their bikes or take a train into Kobe to the mission home. And President Stout is speaking. And then there's this question and answer period at the end of his remarks. Now, in a certain district, and by the way, districts are basically four missionaries living in an apartment. That's a district. So there was one district. It wasn't my district. And the typical schedule was that you'd wake up, you would eat your breakfast, and then you would have an hour of personal study and then an hour of group study, usually of the scriptures. And you do all this before you headed out the door at 1030 in the morning. Well, it was very common for missionaries to not suit up completely while they're still in the apartment doing their personal study and their group study with the other missionaries. But in one district, there was a gung-ho missionary. There's always that gung-ho missionary who dresses up with the full tie and the suit for group study before they've even left the apartment. And none of the other missionaries are doing that. But this one guy is so full of himself that he wants to do it. He wants to impose this on the other missionaries that they should dress up and put their tie on for group study. And none of the other three missionaries are having it. So it's with that background that we have this mission conference, right? And President Stout gets to the end of his comments, asks for questions, and yes, gung-ho missionary raises his hand. And the other three missionaries are going, oh my gosh, please no. President Stout calls on gung-ho missionary and gung-ho missionary says, you know, I always wear my tie and my suit during group scripture study in the morning. President Stout, don't you think that all the missionaries should have to wear their ties during group study? And there was a pause of about three seconds after gung-ho missionary asked that question where every single other missionary in attendance who did not wear their ties during group study and did not want to have to wear their ties during group study and did not appreciate the fact that gung-ho missionary was putting up the idea to the president who might actually back gung-ho missionary and make all the other missionaries wear their ties during group study, that they felt their lives were hanging in the balance. Three seconds went by. 
President Stout stood there contemplating this question and then finally gave us his answer. You know, Elder, I don't think Jesus really likes ties that much. And there was a silent shout of approbation that went up from every single missionary in the room, except for one, gung-ho missionary was put in his place. And we all rejoiced in our hearts over the fact that his attempt to enforce his version of self-righteousness on all the other missionaries in the mission had blown up in his face and he had been completely discomfited by President Stout. Yes, if we did not love President Stout before then, we sure as hell loved him then. Okay, so having said all of these things, now let me get to the story that President Stout told in a different mission conference. It was a miracle story. It was a story from his mission, which he himself had served in Japan 20 or 25 years before. And this story was so unusual and so singular that I remember it to this day. And I will tell it to you as I heard President Stout tell it to all the missionaries who hung on every word of this narrative. President Stout was a missionary in Japan. Obviously, he had a companion. They had been teaching an individual and were ready to get this person baptized. There were not fonts available in churches at that time. And so they did their baptisms, or at least this particular baptism, in the ocean. So they had their investigator. He's dressed in white. The missionaries are dressed in white. They take him out from the beach into the ocean. And it was very, very choppy water. There were high waves. There was a storm coming in. But they felt that they could get this baptism taken care of quickly, get back on shore, and it wouldn't be a problem. Well, they got out there into about waist-deep water. The waves are higher than their heads. They're crashing over their heads. And they're making the baptism impossible to perform. And what President Stout said was that his companion was going to perform the baptism. So... Elder Stout walked out a step or two beyond where his companion was standing with the investigator in the ocean, raised his right arm to the square, and had this thought come to his mind, who are you, you Pacific Ocean? I bear the holy priesthood of God. And he raised his right hand to the square, and he rebuked the waves. And in response, the wind stopped blowing for a few moments, and the waves subsided for a few moments. And even more miraculously, President Stout said that behind him, where his companion was going to baptize the investigator, a circle of perfectly calm water formed amongst the waves around his companion and around the investigator. And in that circle of perfectly flat and calm water, his companion baptized the investigator and then brought him forth from the water. As soon as that was done, the waves kicked up again, the storm was upon them, and they turned around and they started wading as fast as they could through the ocean water toward the shore. But before they could get there, a mammoth wave came down upon the missionaries and the investigator, but it didn't crush them under its weight. Instead, it lifted them up on the crest of the wave, brought them to shore, and deposited them on a hillock of sand, and then the wave withdrew back into the ocean. I think one of the reasons that I can remember this so vividly is because it is a story that paints a picture that for me was unforgettable. And then President Stout said, I know it's hard to believe, and I would have had trouble believing it myself, except for the fact that brother so-and-so, and I can't remember the name of the brother, it was probably a Japanese brother, that brother so-and-so recorded the whole thing on film. Now, he did not produce the film, but the very fact that there existed such a film gave increased weight to his story, which I was already happy to believe just based on his say-so alone. He's a personal witness. He was there. He saw it happen. And if President Stout says it happened, believe me, it happened. The spirit was present in that room. I felt it. Every other missionary that I talked to felt it. We knew that it was true and that it happened just the way President Stout had said it happened. And I had not thought of that story in a long, long time until last summer. Because in the summer of 2022, I was doing a different podcast. It was dealing with the subject of unpaid ministry in the church and how even though that has been a selling point of the church and many different leaders of the church and members of the church have talked about how there's no paid ministry in the church, actually, there is a paid ministry in the church. We just don't talk about it. And exhibit A, for me, 
in statements about how there's no paid ministry was going to be Floyd Weston's famous talk, The 17 Points of the True Church. Because one of those 17 points is no paid ministry. I knew that. I had listened to Floyd Weston's talk back in the 1980s. I got it on cassette tape from a Deseret bookstore. I loved that story. And it was a famous story. It was a very popular story. And Floyd Weston was a very famous and popular speaker because of it. And if you don't remember the story, the story is basically this. It's set in and around World War II when Floyd Weston is at college. He has a number of other classmates who are of different religions. There's one of these guys who's a friend of his. There's five of them in total. His name's John Dunbar. He's super smart. And John Dunbar goes through the Bible, specifically the New Testament, and figures out the 17 points of the true church of Jesus' time types them up on little three-by-five cards, hands them out to the other members of the group, and says, these 17 points define Jesus' church in the New Testament. If we can find any church today that matches all 17 of these points, then we know we have found the Lord's true church. So they all go their various ways. There is a war to fight. One of them gets killed in the war, but the other four end up coming home. And miraculously, miraculously, All four of the surviving members of this five-man group who had these three-by-five cards with the 17 points of the true church and were out there trying to find the true church based upon the 17 points, all of them ended up joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is the story behind the 17 points of the true church. Well, the talk that is available on the internet which is from that very cassette tape. In fact, in the middle of the talk, you can hear the recording say, this is the end of side one, turn the tape over for side two, and then it continues with the talk. There's nothing in there that I hadn't heard many times before, but as part of my research, I found that there was another talk that Floyd Weston had given in 1996. This was at a mission training conference in Sandy, Utah, where he'd been asked to come and give some kind of presentation, which he did. And I listened to his presentation. And as I was listening to his presentation, imagine my shock, my surprise, my disappointment when I started hearing him tell a story that sounded eerily familiar, a story that he had not told in his cassette tape presentation of the 17 points of the true church, but that he was relating to these missionaries in Sandy, Utah in 1996. Let me give you a lead into this story. It's about three minutes long, but what he's talking about is he hasn't become a member of the church yet, but he's figured out that the LDS church is the right church because of the 17.35 card. And he's talking to the stake president and he thinks, I want to get baptized. Now he's about ready to ship out into combat. So he's in California, Southern California, which is where he's from. He's ready to ship out and he wants to get baptized right away because he knows this is the true church. And the stake president is trying to put him off and say, well, you need to have the missionary discussions first. And Floyd says, I don't have time for that. I've got to do it right now. So the stake president interviews him, finds out that Floyd Weston actually already knows everything that the missionaries would tell him. So he says, okay, we'll go ahead and baptize you at the beach tomorrow morning. And that's where this story picks up. Play the tape. Had to have certain information within us that would allow the Lord to hold us somewhat accountable for our, our acts. And so he interviewed me and he said, well, I think this would be wonderful. He said, our baptism is in another two and a half weeks in Oxnard. I said, sir, you don't understand. I'll be in combat then. I, I need to be baptized now. And he said, well, we don't have a font here. And I said, sir, I've been raised in the ocean all of my life. Is there anything wrong with getting baptized in the ocean? He looked at his counselors and he thought, and he said, why? I don't think there's, I think that would be just fine. So the next morning was Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. It was a nice day and there were already people gathered on the beach. And I was alarmed because I was embarrassed. I was clothed in white and they didn't fit too well. And as we were walking out on the beach, I thought, I hope there is no one here that knows me. And then that alarmed me. I said, "Uh uh-oh, Weston, you are not converted or you would not be embarrassed. See, that's the problem of being converted by logic. And so I wanted to turn around and leave, but he was such a wonderful man. And I had a lovely Mormon girl standing there watching me, and I wasn't about to let her. So I went. Someone said, they're swimming to Catalina. 
as we went by. And we went out in the surf, and I'm an old body surfer, and uh, and as we got out there, there was a heavy, heavy surf that day, about a five-foot break. And President Peck was not a surfer. And uh, people were standing there on the beach and looking at us, and I was embarrassed. And he raised his arm to the square, and I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And every time he'd do that, wham! A wave would hit him, and down he'd go, being an old lifeguard. I'd pull him out, and he'd be sputtering. <laughs> that happened three or four times. And then President Peck turned around. Now, I was there, and I was doubting, and I saw this. He turned around, and he stared out to sea, and all of the waves stopped. He turned around, he said, there, and uh, raised his arm to the square and recited that beautiful prayer. And all the time I was going down under the water, I thought, he stopped the waves. <laughs> I've never seen him like that in my life. As I came out of the water, all I could think of, I said, sir, you stopped the waves. Well, he said, they were very bothersome. <laughs> and let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I knew, I knew that I was in the right place, in the right church. I saw a demonstration of priesthood power, and I, that carried me through all of my overseas tour. Every time I would start to falter and so on, I would remember what I had seen. And I had a spiritual conversion that saved my life. So that's the story Floyd Weston tells about his baptism. And as he began to describe it, I start saying, wait a second, this is starting to sound eerily similar to what it was that President Stout told me happened at the baptism he was involved in in Japan. And as Floyd Weston continues to tell his story, and I continue to hear him tell his story, I am getting a bigger and bigger sinking feeling in my stomach because I'm starting to realize that this story that President Stout told was not unique. It was a variation of the same story. And in fact, President Stout's story was probably just about as believable as Floyd Weston's story. Now, if you're looking at the two stories, you can find a bunch of differences, maybe about five of them, details that happen in one story that don't happen in the other or vice versa. And you can say, well, these are obviously very different stories. But the fact remains that these are the only two stories I have ever heard in my entire experience in Mormonism, which is vast, that involve a missionary calming the ocean in the context of performing a baptism. Now, obviously, it's riffing off the New Testament story about Jesus calming the storm. But within the Mormon paradigm, these are the only two times I've heard about the ocean being stilled, and they both involve a convert baptism taking place. Now, in a world where people calm the seas every day by the power of the priesthood, these stories are very different. But in a world where that never happens, these stories are virtually identical. Yes, there are variations on a theme, but the theme itself remains the same. And I was shocked that last summer, in the summer of 2022, when I listened to the story told by Floyd Weston, that I found myself once again being disappointed by Mormonism. It's like Al Pacino in the third Godfather movie. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Now, obviously, the LDS Church is not pulling me back into activity in the church, but I was floored, absolutely floored, that the church still had the power to disappoint me after all these years. And I'm left with a strange conclusion that maybe because I believe the church to be true so much, because I loved it so much, because I trusted it and its leaders so much, that even after I don't trust the leaders anymore, that even after I don't believe it's true anymore, that somehow, some way, it still retains the power to disappoint me. And I am personally sure that there are some members of the church who know me before and after my disaffection feel disappointment in me for leaving the church and then speaking out in a critical way against it. And you know, there are times when I think about 
The people in the church, including Bruce, the guy who baptized me, other people like Ronnie Garcia, faithful members of the church who knew me back when I was a true believing Mormon and very faithful, and I worry that they will find out who it is that I have become, that I have turned into Radio Free Mormon, that I am no longer a faithful member of the church, and that indeed I spend a good deal of time speaking out about the problems with the LDS church. I fear that they will find out and be disappointed in me. And so the title of this podcast, Disappointing Mormonism, is a bit of a double entendre because it can mean that I'm disappointed by Mormonism or it can mean that I am disappointing to Mormonism. Well, I think after 45 years of being disappointed by Mormonism, maybe it's about time for Mormonism to be disappointed by me. I suppose what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And as my friend Stephen King might say, third time pays for all. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.